Greg, have you ever taken a calculus class? Like a specific class that just teaches you calculus? Yeah, like I took a class in university just called calculus. I don't think so. Wait, really? I was expecting this answer to be like really easy. Like, yes, I've taken a calculus class. What? So we covered calculus, like we touched on it in school, like pre-university, either GCSE or A-level. So was it GCSE? Was it A-level? Anyway, around 16, (laughs) 17, 18, we did, um, yeah, derivatives and integration. Wait, this is blowing my mind. I had no idea you guys did not separate calculus out because we did. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about my calculus experience because I think a lot of people feel the same way and that like my whole educational career, math has made me incredibly anxious and insecure. And this is really normal. And I've found out recently that it actually has a psychological term. It's called math anxiety. It's Mm. very aptly named. Mm. And it's actually this sort of negative feedback loop in your brain where the anxiety about the math neurochemically shuts down the parts of your brain that help you learn and retain information. Oh, that sucks. Right? So it works out really nicely where the anxiety actually makes math harder and math harder to absorb. And this is really normal. I want anybody out there who feels the same way to know that you are not alone. And I'm so sorry because I just dropped some maths lingo in there and might have given people a little, you know, heart palpitation. Yeah, Greg, get in, get in ahead of us, ahead Sorry. of the game here. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, it's definitely what I've been the most insecure about during my scientific career and was sort of the one thing holding me back from coming back to science higher education, even now that I'm doing this, this new master's. But I'm here to tell you a story, Greg, that has completely changed my attitude towards math kind of once and for all. It has given me a totally renewed perspective on like numbers and the way we describe the world around us, the very nature of the universe. Deep. Right? It begins in ancient Sumeria. Mm -hmm. It takes us into the future of science and technology. It includes many debates between men in flouncy shirts, notes written in code, some of the most eccentric characters in science history, and the true story of Isaac Newton and his infamous apple. Come on, this sounds great. And also I love maths. I know you're gonna come on this journey like very willingly with me, Greg. I'm super pumped that you're the one listening to this story. But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I am Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hansberger. And for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means that Greg knows nothing about what we're about to talk about. Actually, he probably knows something because he's a smart dude who likes math, so. (laughs) So did you not cover calculus at all until college, which for you is university? This is totally blowing my mind. Okay, so we, and this is what I was going to talk about, is like in school, we had a whole class that you took just by itself on geometry. It was just geometry. We had a whole class, just algebra. We had a whole class, just what we call pre-calculus, which is like trigonometry. It's like getting you ready for it, like preschool. Yeah, no, literally. Like, okay, we're warming you up for it. And we had a, yeah, we had calculus. You could take it in high school. I didn't. I took statistics instead because I'm a bio nerd and the stats is important for that stuff. So like we're talking about today, Greg, our story is going to take us through this wild journey of all kinds of mathematics, focusing mainly on calculus. And being the non-calculus expert that I am, I did speak to two incredibly smart people who know a heck of a lot more about it than I do. And one of those people is Natalia Berlin. I'm a professor of applied mathematics at the uh, Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, University of Cambridge. And so going back to this concept of the fact that like when I was in school, we separated these out. I always considered them just like totally different branches of mathematics and they never really came together in my head. Like algebra was distinct from geometry, which was distinct and separate from calculus. But it turns out calculus, algebra and geometry, they are all interconnected. You cannot separate one from another. 
Yeah, so that's why we didn't do a separate course here in the UK. Like, they were all lumped into the same maths course. I feel like this would have made much more sense in my brain if they had taught it this way in the United States. This is blowing my mind that you can think about it in a different way. (laughs) So anyway, this is where I realize in talking to Natalia that I'm going to need to go back and think about, like, all of math, right? I can't separate calculus out by itself because it doesn't exist by itself. And this brings me on this epic journey to trace the roots of modern mathematics. And I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour of the highlights. I am really excited. And I love that you've just said ambitiously, you're going to cover the whole of the history of maths in this one episode. (laughs) Listen, go big or go home, Greg. (laughs) I'm coming from hating math to being like, I am an ardent fan. Cool. (laughs) Here we go. So this is where we have to start back in ancient Sumeria. Do you know where Sumeria is, Greg? Uh, Middle East yes, kind of exactly. area. Yes, exactly. Like the cradle of civilization around these rivers, right? And we're talking about 3000 BCE before Common Era. And we're transitioning, right? We have for the past couple of centuries, but we're transitioning from hunter-gatherer to agriculture society. And this means that we need to start keeping track of stuff maybe Mm -hmm. a little more rigorously. We're adding, we're subtracting. People are like dividing up resources in communities. People are starting to have property, things that you need to measure and keep track of. And all around the world in sort of the same general time frame, these number systems and being able to record things numerically are popping up in Mesopotamia, Egypt, India, people keeping track of stuff. Yeah, so it's like, hey, you've taken three sheep or I've got four (laughs) bushels of corn. Exactly. So it's starting to become really important how much of something you have, how big something is. For example, in ancient Egypt, the Nile rises above its banks every year. And if you've drawn, you know, the delineation of your farm and the river washes it away, you need to have measured it so you can redraw them when the river goes back. You need to know how many beers... Um, no, seriously, like, I think they got paid in beer in Egypt. So it's like, oh how much God. work do, have I done? How many beers do you owe me? You might be right. I, that's, I think I, so. It had never occurred to me, but I think you're... Uh, beer, you heard it here first. Essential to the beginning of mathematics. Every mathematician will be delighted. <laughs> so we have the beginnings here in this redrawing of lines, this measuring of like a square field. This is the beginnings of geometry, right? And the Greeks take that and run with it, right? They take that to the extreme. You got Pythagoras. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Oh my God, you just had that right at the top of your head. How to measure Triangles, a triangle. Yeah. Exactly. So like if you have two sides, you can then find the third side. How um, many beans should I eat? Yeah, sure. Why not? We've got Archimedes. Oh yeah. Okay, um, what Screw, um, Archimedes screw, like how to get water uphill. Okay, yes. Okay, but what's the other like super famous Archimedes story that you remember? <laughs> you mean the one where he's running naked down the street yelling, Eureka! Absolutely, that classic. Because uh, he jumped in a bath and some water came out. Exactly, exactly. But like at the time, mind-blowing experience, right? Displacement of water, it has to go somewhere. Big idea. But... So Archimedes is the one who figured out the formula for the area of a circle, for the circumference of a circle. He estimated pi to the greatest accuracy of anyone up till that point in history. I mean, he did so many things that really were proto-calculus. What a god he was. What a god of mathematics. Oh, yeah. So was. Um, Proto-calculus. I know. That's a cool term, right? So so that was Stephen Strogatz. He's an applied mathematician and a math professor at Cornell University. And he also wrote this incredible book that was super helpful for this episode on the history and nature of calculus. It's called Infinite Powers. And I want you to think about it. Up until the circle which seems so simple, right? In the history of geometry, we're dealing with rectangles, triangles, flat planes, straight lines, easy to measure and quantify. But you get to a circle, it's like, what the heck did he do with this? Complicated. Yeah, but kind of useful for making wheels. (laughs) 
very useful for making wheels. So understanding it is important and presents this massive puzzle to the Greeks and Archimedes. So this concept of pie is very important, right? Because that's I know, me too. Uh, Apple that, pie? I think apple's probably black my favorite. pie? I've never had a black currant pie. Anyway, we're talking about pie the number. <laughs> P-I, not P-I-E, Greg. Although we'll get to pies in a second. 3.1415926. Oh my God. I'm a math nerd. See, again, off the top of your head. I, this is why you were the perfect person to tell this story to. So pie is that special magic ingredient that we use to help us find the area of a circle, which is basically like a never-ending curve, right? And Natalia gives us a great mathematical grounding in this concept here. They define pi as the ratio of circumference to the diameter. And then to determine the area of a circle, they simply inscribed regular polygons of every increasing number of vertices into the circle. Okay, so that's kind of like a little bit too complicated for my brain. So I had to break it down. And this is where we're going to come back to pie. Like stick with the pie metaphor. Picture a pizza, Greg. Mm -hmm. What's your topping of choice? pizza. Let's go barbecue chicken. Okay, love it. Delicious. And the Greeks say to find this area of your barbecue chicken pizza, what you need to do is cut your pizza into infinitely many tiny rectangles. Because we can measure a rectangle. We know the area of a rectangle. And to get the area of your circle, you take that infinite number of tiny rectangles and add together their areas. Now, of course, Infinity is an interesting concept, and we will get to that. I was going to say, you're never going to stop counting those <laughs> rectangles. I'm never going to eat my whole pizza. Yeah, true. You can never you can never eat your whole pizza. There's always some pizza <gasps> left. Ooh. Existential pizza crisis. Existential pizza crisis! But this also completely blew my mind, is that that's the reason that pi never ends. The number pi is never ending. Brilliant. Yes. Because the pizza also never ends. You never find the full area of the pizza because you have to do infinitely many tiny rectangles to get the whole area of the pizza. And the smaller those rectangles are, the even more infinite number there will be. It's very irrational of the number pi, hey. which is funny because it's hey. an irrational hey. number. Look at me, I'm doing yeah. math puns. Uh, you. Thank you. So ancient Greeks already used this idea of breaking into something small and then adding it together to integrate to find the areas. They never called it calculus, but they already used these ideas. Anyway, we could spend all day talking just about pi because I think it's super cool, but we have to leave the Greeks behind for a second. And think about the fact that for the next couple of centuries, scholars all over the world are taking these same concepts and evolving them. Scholars in China, scholars in the Middle East, scholars in India continue to expand on these ideas about finding the areas of tricky shapes, non-regular polygons. Yeah, this is integration. Okay, yes, but like hold that thought because we're coming to that. It's coming. That was all the thought was. I can't remember this stuff. <laughs> well, don't worry because I kind of just learned again what it is and I will explain it. <laughs> and then several centuries later, elsewhere in the world, algebra is being invented. And algebra, Stephen told me, actually initially came about because of a need to calculate things in Islamic inheritance law. Oh yeah, because um, the Islamic world in medieval times is like this explosion of science and maths. Yes. It's like one of the most interesting periods of the history of science. Yes, math, like incredible math innovation in the Islamic kingdoms of the medieval period. Al-Jabra is an Arabic word for restoring something that was broken which is close to the idea that when we do algebra problems, we sometimes subtract something from one side and, you know, or like we'll add terms to both sides to cancel out something. I think that it was in the Islamic world around that time where they came up with the concept of zero. Yes, I think 
I've read that the idea of zero may arise independently in a couple of different mathematical gestalts or mathematical cultures. India is one of them.、Uh-huh. Um, I think in the Islamic world is another. So the idea of zero is also freaking crazy. I actually have a video on Seeker's YouTube channel about it. If anybody wants to go check that out. Hashtag plug. Just a little little plug there. But algebra in general is this idea that we have an unknown, right? That we need to solve for, and we can do that by manipulating these other known variables in an equation to help us find the unknown quantity. That's a beautiful description of it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So then we have to sort of zoom forward to the 1500s because this is when algebra hits its peak, and we start seeing the representation of the unknowns as letters, right? So we're starting to use letters to represent the quantities that we're trying to solve for. So that's pretty cool. And throughout the 15 and 1600s, we have all the great minds of the time working on this concept of areas, and increasingly the concept of volumes of curved shapes. So, like Johannes Kepler, famous astronomer, right, finds the volumes of curved shapes like wine barrels by slicing them, like in his mind. Of course, he did. Well, I mean,、wine、we got beer、barrels. in Egypt. We、yeah. got wine for Johannes. Hand in hand. Of course,、uh, he just in his brain, Greg, slices these wine barrels into infinite numbers of infinitesimally thin discs to find the volume of the wine barrel. Galileo and his students are computing the areas and volumes of various. Curved shapes by treating them as infinite stacks of lines and surfaces. Kepler loved an oval, an ellipse, because、oh, yeah? he,、uh, you know, he's、orbits. doing yeah the the track of planets around the sun. You're so right. And as Stephen puts it, I would say it really began with questions about curves. Curves are very mysterious. It being calculus, right? So how exactly do we get algebra and geometry coming together to birth this beautiful beast that we now call? Calculus,、mm. and what even is infinity anyway, Greg? It's boundless. It's endless. It's really freaking me out, is what it is. And we'll, <laughs> we'll dive into all of that right after this short break. And we're back. We're talking about the state of mathematics, as Greg would call it. Maths, the correct way. I mean, you're not wrong. It makes a lot more sense. Because you take fifth- out from the e right to the c of mathematics, Listen, and what do you get? We've already discussed、maths. education. Sorry, math education in the U.S. makes z- zero sense. Zero. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Hey, that's twice. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm really getting on board with this. And so we've got this fact that science and math are still really trying to tackle this mysterious problem of the curve. In the mid 1600s, we've got two important characters: Pierre de Fermat and René Descartes. Or if we're going to go full French, we've got Pierre de Fermat and René Descartes. <laughs> Fermat's last theorem. Exactly. And what about Descartes? Where do we know him from? Oh my goodness! This harks back to philosophy、Big、of、time. science. Like he thinks, and therefore he is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's. I think. Okay. I read this in Latin, and it makes me feel really smart to say it. Oh come off it! You're not going to put Latin on surprisingly brilliant. Ergo sum. <laughs> I feel like I just went to like Eton or something. Hang on. Thank you, thank you. So they're two French scholars. They're doing a bunch of stuff, philosophy, ethics, whatever, but mathematics in particular. And they independently, like separately from each other, on their own, are joining together the disciplines of geometry and algebra, and it becomes called eventually analytic geometry.、Mm-hmm. And this, I never even thought about this, Greg. This happened to me so many times during this episode. This is the first time that math makes the leap. Onto that classical graph that we've all seen in school, right? So a big plus sign, essentially, the horizontal x-axis, 
the vertical y-axis, and you can plot points on it. And numbers are represented as points in space. This abstraction of numbers into this like plane that numbers can be points on a line is like a brand new concept. Is it? Due to analytic geometry. Huh. So they have essentially a, um, a dimension, right? They have they have multiple properties and exactly. it's a way of visualizing them. I mean, we're still in 2D currently with the Descartes and the Fermat, but these ideas are seriously radical. Really blew mathematics out of the water. And from there, they each separately realized that an equation can represent a line. So instead of just like two coordinates being a point, you can write an equation that will be points on a line. Yeah, so you mentioned equations earlier, so we could have an equation like y equals 2x, mm -hmm. and then to plot that on that, that cross graph thing, mm -hmm. say x is one, then y is double it, so it's two. Say x is three, y is double it, it's six. So then you'd plot on that graph, you'd, you'd like go along the x and you'd be like, okay, there's x for three and you go up and then you'd be like a little little cross where the y equals six. Mm -hmm. And you do that for every point you want to and it draws this wicked line, boom, there it is. That's y equals two x on that graph. Beautifully put, Greg, exactly. And so this idea of a linear equation that you've just described gives rise to the idea of its opposite, a non-linear equation. The wiggly ones. The wiggly ones, The uh, an equation for a curve. Mm -hmm. And they went crazy for the curves, these boys, mostly in mathematics, but you know, in other ways, maybe. And as Steven in his book puts it very nicely, algebra gave geometry a system and geometry gave algebra meaning. I like Steven. I know. He has some fantastic sound bites He's about so math. Great. And actually, actually, I'm just going to plug for Steven here. He has his own podcast. It's called The Joy of X and it's about math. And he, the Joy it's of X. Oh, amazing. Steven. He is a great dude. I'm a huge Steven fan. So remember at the beginning when I said great debates between men and flouncy shirts? Mm -hmm. This is where some of those great debates start because Rene and Pierre, right? Descartes and Fermat, rather than working together to further this beautiful field of knowledge, infamously had a lifelong feud about it and who came up with these ideas first. And it just continues their whole lives with them trying to discredit each other and each other's theories and each other's reputations. It's like the mean girls of the scientific revolution, 17th century style. <laughs> it gets ugly. <laughs> so Rene and Pierre, for all of their squabbling, do together essentially lay the groundwork for what we now call calculus. But there are still some intractable problems that their new way of thinking, this analytic geometry, still can't answer. And one of those questions is, how do you find the area under a curve? Ah, right. Right? Because that curve is not regular. You know straight lines there. You can't find the area like you can with a rectangle. But it was hard enough finding the area of the pizza of the circle, let alone know. something that isn't a regular shape. I know. I know. And I love the way that Natalia talks about this point in mathematics. Calculus would have to appear at about that period of time. It had to. It's just everything, the development of mathematics to that point was such that sooner or later, it could be difference of a couple of years, but someone would invent calculus. So there was this common problem that loads of people were working on. It was just really a case of who nails it first. Yes, and I, I really love this idea that it had to be invented. Like we are at the point on the verge of discovery that this way of thinking about numbers has to come about. And it it led me down a major existential rabbit hole again, Greg, like a lot of things in this episode about like, is math invented or mm -hmm. discovered? <laughs> is it just there and we find it? I remember, like, uh. I had an essay that I had to write when I was doing the philosophy of science, and it was called 2 plus 2 equals 5, discuss. What? 
And I was like, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, what? And that's about like the construction of words to represent things. And you could obviously use different words, but totally. it's exactly what you're talking exactly about. Exactly the same with math. And I wonder all the time, like, okay, so say humans don't exist, aliens come to earth and they have to invent a way of thinking, like measuring and calculating things in the world. Would they also come up with calculus? Would it be the same? Would it be different? I just think of this as insane. Okay, but this is something we'll come back to because we've got to come back to the timeline, got to come back to history. Who would you say invents calculus? About 30 years after René Descartes and Pierre de Fermat and their silly feuds. Who's the inventor? I kind of want to go to Newton. Okay. But am I just, am I falling into the obvious trap? Oh, see, this is the it's problem. It's a trap. <laughs> this podcast is you know that the obvious answer is not necessarily hey we have shown in this season that sometimes it is like the answer that you should go for as well though so i'm gonna stick i'm trying to read your face i'm gonna stick with newton i got a good poker face here here's steven well there is this popular view that calculus was born out of the mind of one person out of isaac newton often it's even dated as being the year 1665 to 66 the plague year you hear about this a lot now that we're undergoing our own plague right now. And I've seen memes on the internet where people joke around about how, you know, Isaac Newton went home and invented calculus and discovered the law of gravity, blah, blah, blah. What are you doing during your plague year? Heard that so much. Don't so feel bad much. if you're not inventing calculus. No. You don't have to be productive during this pandemic, guys. It's enough that you're listening to an educational podcast. That's true. Go you. Okay, Greg, are you staying with your answer that Isaac Newton invented calculus? Yes. Sticking to your guns, a man of conviction. I like it. It's not really right. I mean, yes, Isaac Newton was fantastic, and he did do a lot in that year in particular, but there were precursors to Newton. Newton wasn't kidding when he said that he stood on the shoulders of giants. He absolutely did. Okay, who did Newton get calculus off? Well, the hint is sort of in this background that we've been discovering, Greg, is that calculus is not, as we've said, this separate thing that is like this glowing globe. It's of... a, yeah, it's an evolution of an idea. Right. Like its precursor is analytic geometry. Those precursors are geometry and algebra separately. Although, like that's sort of the, you know, more lengthy academic philosophical answer. But there is another player on the field here. A contender, a rival, if you will. And he also technically invented calculus. But what really went down? Newton was interested in the effect of gravity. So we take the idea of Newton's apple, right? This myth that like he sees an apple fall and he's like, why does it always go towards the ground? Gravity. Ta-da. And I actually did some reading. This is a true story. Or at least he told that story to a friend. So like he mythologized himself. Yeah, the Newton apple story is true to the extent that he told the story of him in an apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like, I love that at Cambridge, um, people are like, that's the apple tree outside of Newton's <laughs> supposed room. And then there's like his his house that he retires to, I think, during the play. Yeah, yeah. And they go, that's the apple tree. <laughs> oh, nice, nice, nice. There are many apocryphal apple yeah. trees. <laughs> All the apple trees are the Newton's apple tree. So he's got this idea of gravity, right? That occurs to him. But he's also wondering, how can I know the properties of the apple at every single point between the tree branch and the ground? Mm -hmm. So how I answer the question of what is the velocity of the object when it hits the ground? So clearly, to find the velocity, I need to divide the distance traveled by time. Now, I'm just going to interrupt Natalia super quick here because she is wicked smart and she goes through this kind of fast. But you might remember from your school days that the equation for speed is 
distance, so how far something travels over time, or the time that it takes for that thing to travel that distance. So speed equals distance over time. But velocity is a little bit different from speed. It's a little bit more complicated. Since velocity changes at every position, I really have to have infinitesimal element of time and infinitesimal distance that it traveled and divide one by another. But this is like dividing by zero. And by that time, everyone knew that that's not allowed. You cannot divide by zero. So how to go around this problem? So she was talking there about the equations of motion, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. You know, speed at the start and, you know... Classical physics. Although actually, no, they wouldn't have had that before... Newton because they wouldn't have known the rate of change of of it speeding up. And this is essential. This is the essence of calculus, Greg. If you had to boil calculus down into one word, I would say it's the mathematics of change. Anything that changes can be described with calculus. And where it really shines is when the change itself keeps changing. Yes, 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 you yes, were, yes. You were like so on okay. the right track, right? Okay, yes, right. Your, your head this is, is dusting right there. off these, these memories now. I know, right? I feel like my brain is getting such a good workout with this. And you'll notice we keep coming back to this idea of infinity, right? Infinite number of things or infinitesimally small units of measurement, infinite numbers of those, infinite places in time and space. And I really tried to pin our experts down on what exactly infinity is and why it's so important. Good luck. Thanks. <laughs> Very paradoxical concept that gives a lot of people headaches. It's part of human, <laughs> the things we fear the most often have to do with infinity. You know, the abyss, the bottomless pit, um, questions about eternity. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big one. Yeah, pretty it's, much. It's quite literally the biggest one. Yeah, and I don't, we still kind of don't have but answers. don't ask us how big. <laughs> Infinitely big. Oh God, Greg. <laughs> but the way Stephen expressed it to me helped me wrap my mind around it a little bit more. So I want you to picture you're standing in a field mm -hmm. and you need to get to a wall. Mm -hmm. Walk halfway to the wall. Yep. Okay. I will. Yeah, you're closer. Yep. Now walk halfway to the wall. Even closer. Got it. You can keep doing this. <gasps> and I'm you never going to get to the wall. The wall. Right. So this is where this, this idea comes in of like differently sized infinities or differently sized pieces of infinity and never being able to reach the limit or the end of that journey, an infinite series. Yeah, because someone's going to say, look, as soon as you're one shoe's length away from the wall, if you try to go halfway towards it, your shoe's going to hit it and you're at the wall. That's not what we're talking about. We're being theoretical here. The idea is that I'm like a point in space, yeah, yep. and I'm never going to reach that wall. Exactly. And so this idea of measuring infinity, this is what occurs to Newton. And he's the one who represents this idea mathematically. And there's two concepts in calculus that we need to understand to be able to fully grasp the work that Isaac is doing right now. So you would like to understand something by breaking something into small pieces. So in differential calculus, we cut something into small pieces and then think how each piece change in time or in position. And in integral calculus, we'll do kind of the opposite thing that we join small pieces together to find how much there is. All right, so Natalia is saying there are two different types of calculus, differential and integral. Ding, ding, ding. And differential is about breaking something apart and seeing how it changes, mm -hmm. and integral is about putting it back together again. Exactly. And Newton is the one that not only comes up with systematized ways of expressing both of these things. Big word. Thank you. Very difficult to say. Equations, like sets of equations, or like equational laws, ways to express both of these practices. And he also is the one who comes up with this idea or who proves through what becomes known as the fundamental theorem of calculus, which is incredibly famous, that 
differentiation and integration, so differential calculus and integral calculus, are two sides of the same coin. They're like the photographic negative of the original photograph. It's like a yin-yang thing. Yeah. Like, they're like, they're like, you can kind of imagine, they kind of slot together. Totally. One's like the, yeah, they're they kind of opposite but other. the same. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Isaac is interested in gravity. He's interested in measuring the way things change their state over time. And change like this can be represented as a curved line and or the area under that curve, like those analytical geometrists were exploring. And so he's investigating all of this. And I wanna tell you a little bit more about him as a person, because this is important to the story. He's in England in the mid 1600s. This is when this, this prime story is taking place. And he's pretty infamously like really reclusive really introverted all right. by himself all the time. And he has such a fear of criticism and confrontation that he hates publishing his work. I mean, he's coming up with like the fundamental laws of physics. And obviously, as we say, like the fundamental theorem of calculus. And he hates publishing. He just doesn't want someone to say anything bad about it. He so doesn't he's want like, to show I won't put it out there. his work to right. anybody. And this will get him into trouble later, as we will see. So during his time at Cambridge, he's working on this fundamental theorem of calculus. And I want to come back to our pizza for a hot second. Sure, I'm Beca hungry. All right, I know, delicious. The way that Archimedes was finding those infinite number of rectangles is literally by like making the shapes. By drawing them. And like cutting them apart. Like wow. little, picture like little pieces of paper, like a puzzle. He's like physically making the pizza, if you will, and cutting the pieces apart to try and find the area. And the concepts that Archimedes is exploring there is what we call the infinity principle. And what Newton does with this system of equations and the fundamental theorem of calculus is take that I need to cut up these, you know, infinite number of pieces of paper to try and find the area and make it into an equation. There were problems that Archimedes solved with the power of one of the greatest minds in history that are now routine exercises for an ordinary high school student. And that is only possible because of Isaac Newton, that Newton found the secret trick, the trick through this so-called fundamental theorem of calculus that made seemingly, you know, like the problems that were at the hardest cutting edge of what human beings could do for thousands of years, they became ordinary exercises. So that was why we remember Newton. He made calculus look easy. Oh, Stephen, sick burn. Right, so he's gone from calling Archimedes a god to basically being like, yeah, For people do time. that now when they're kids in school. I know, when he said that to me in the interview, I was like, it might be easy for some people, Stephen. <laughs> it was not easy for me. <laughs> so Isaac is doing this incredibly groundbreaking work, changing the way that we think about numbers forever. And what do you think he does with all of this work, Greg? He doesn't publish it. He, he writes it up, puts it in a book, Puts it under the bed. He's like, I did a good thing, but the world's not going to know. Kind of. Isaac is such an interesting character because he does write it up. He makes sort of like this little handbook of like genius thoughts. And he gives it to like his friends, like his inner circle. People, his trusted people. People who already regard him as a genius. People right. he knows are not going to give him any grief about mm -hmm. it, right? He's so afraid of confrontation. He's so afraid of any kind of rejection or criticism that he only gives it to people who will be safe. And this becomes an issue. Because does someone else come up with it? And he's yes. like, uh, no, sorry, I did write that up about five years ago. Exactly. And they're like, yeah, but mate, you didn't show it to many people, did you? Greg, you hit the nail on the head, but we'll get into all of that drama right after this break. And we're back. This is surprisingly brilliant, and at this point in time, mid-1600s, Isaac Newton is futzing about in Cambridge, just coming up with the He's fundamental- He's about? Futzing? Have you never heard that? Sorry, what? Just futzing. 
No. But if that's <laughs> like, a word, I'm using like it. fooling around, like, you know, just chilling. Futzing around. Puttering, I guess, <laughs> <Sure>. maybe. <laughs> just, you know, casually coming up with the fundamental ideas of modern physics and modern mathematics, but not really talking to anybody about it because <laughs> he's such an introvert. And meanwhile, a man named Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz ah. is over in Germany. And he is an incredibly driven young man. Much more extroverted in comparison to Newton, but that's not really saying much. Uh, he receives his doctorate in law. He's a diplomat, a logician. He's a got a law background. Yes. Oh, I didn't and, know that. And like in logic, in linguistics, he's like a true polymath. He's one of these men, and granted, like rich, very privileged, educated men who's just like into everything and wants to explore it all. He has a self-professed lifelong aim to catalog all of human knowledge. You know how long that's going to take? Yeah. Infinite time. Ah, Greg! Uh, bringing it back. And he, very aptly, starts exploring these same ideas that Newton did. But anyone who's interested in maths was working on this right now. Definitely, definitely. But there are only a couple of brilliant minds who can really make a lot of progress on it. And there are rumors, because Newton has shared his work with his close inner circle, there are rumors floating around that Newton has made some progress on this. So Gottfried, Leibniz, tries to get in touch with Isaac, being this young, nosy upstart that he is, just like sends Newton a letter and asks him about it. And this correspondence, Greg, is so entertaining. <gasps> Historically, there were no journals. Nowadays, we think about publication in journals as a way of establishing who thought of something first. But they didn't have journals in the 1600s. So if someone wanted to establish that they had thought of something first, how would they do it? They used to do it by writing letters, but often in secret code. They would say, I've thought of something wonderful, and then they'd write an anagram or some other encrypted version of what they had discovered. So they would sort of put their flag in the sand. I've thought of something great. I'm telling you I've thought of it. This code, if you knew how to decode it, would prove that I knew it, but you don't know the code, so you don't know what I thought of. <laughs> so it's a way of telling without telling. And Newton did exactly that sort of thing. Oh my word, this is amazing. <laughs> We're getting well, into some it, serious spy is stuff Is the idea here. that in the future you would then give them the, um, the key to your code yeah. uh, and they would then like you know, reconfigure your cipher and they'd be like, ah, oh, you did know it before me. Literally. Oh my God, this is brilliant. I know. And so Gottfried is trying to ply Isaac for this information. He's like in good faith, all earnest, like, Isaac, please tell me what you know. I have these ideas. And Gottfried sends Isaac like exciting things that he's coming up with. He comes up with this infinite series. But it's like redacted. Well, no, Gottfried is sharing his stuff and Newton replies back with like such a sassy response in like polite gentleman of the time parlance. He essentially says like, yeah, that would be cool if like I hadn't already thought of that and three other things like it. <laughs> so good See job, below. I guess. And then he's just like, yeah, <laughs> sausage leaf. And eventually, eventually in their correspondence, Isaac does actually, he's like kind of getting a little, I think, uh, spooked by how good Gottfried is at this and how close Gottfried is getting. So Isaac feels the need to like prove that he's the first one to have come up with this fundamental theorem. And he actually does express the fundamental theorem to Gottfried, but in code. And I'll have you read it, Greg. You got it. Wow. Okay, here we go. Right. The foundation of these operations is evident enough, in fact, but because I cannot proceed with the explanation of it now, I have preferred to conceal it thus. 6ACCDAE13EFF7I3L9N404QRR4S8T1TVX. Anyone get that? It's like the end of a hyperlink. 
On this foundation, I have also tried to simplify the theories which concern the squaring of curves, and I have arrived at certain general theorems. So that's not a mistake. That's his actual, like, coded way of... That is actually what he wrote in a letter to Godfrey, because he doesn't want to tell him what the theorem is. That's... But he wants there to be proof that he thought about it first. But here's the thing. Unbeknownst to Isaac... Gottfried had actually gotten there on his own. He has discovered and proved his own version of the fundamental theorem of calculus in this time that Isaac is just like faffing about with alchemy and like teasing Gottfried with these coded letters. Gottfried is actually the first one to use the word calculus in the relationship to this area of math. Okay. And this is actually a little bit of a cool side note. Do you want to know where the word calculus comes from? Yeah, I do, because I'm thinking, does calculator come from calculus, or is that a... Yes, they both have the same root, which is... Latin again. Yes, the Latin word calx, which was the word for this tiny little pebble or rock that they would use to count things, to represent a number. That's neat. That the, the Romans would use. Very, very cool. So it's a pretty generic word, right? General calculus, calculations, calculator. But Gottfried calls this systematization of change that he's also come up with the calculus of infinitesimals love it and he sort of affectionately calls it my calculus in many of his writings in his letters he's like very attached to these ideas of calculus and eventually it goes down in history and it becomes known without any of the possessives or modifiers as just calculus gotcha so even though Gottfried finds and comes up with and proves and publishes his calculus like a decade after Newton first performed his calculations, Gottfried is in many ways just as important as Isaac Newton because he publishes it first. Mm. And really importantly, it is in what Stephen calls a graceful and digestible form. He's the one who comes up with the notation that we still use today that's very clean, very simple, very easy to learn, like the standard way of writing it. And he also shares it far and wide. He gathers these like disciples who are like, this is amazing, this is genius, this solves all our problems. And they write the first seminal textbooks on calculus from Gottfried's work. There's echoes here of what we talked about in our first to fly episode, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone who's not listened to that one yet. But but you should go listen to it. But it's like, who did something first? Who talked about something first? But here there's an extra layer because it's you're actually coming up with the language that then people adopt. Mm -hmm. So even if Isaac Newton, you know, came up with it way before Gottfried Leibniz, then if people start adopting the language and the symbols and everything of, of Leibniz, mm -hmm. then that's going to stick. Kind of. And that's what happens. And how do you think Isaac Newton feels about it, Greg? He is not going to be a happy chappy. He is going to rip off his curly wig and gonna <laughs> throw it across the room. Yeah. To put it mildly, not best, please. He tries to insist that he came up with it first. He shows the proof to everyone. And at the time, there's this division between basically countries or geographical camps where Isaac, who's from England, has England behind him. At this point, he's the president of the Royal Society. Mm. And he's sort of leveraging all of this influence to be like, back me, back me, I did it first. And then we've got the continent, continental Europe, so like France, Germany, where Leibniz is from, where Gottfried is from, who are like, yeah, but Gottfried did it better and like published it first and it's cleaner and we use it you know it's, it's better to use <laughs> right so we have this war back and forth and this continues for quite a long time newton spends a considerable amount of time and energy trying to discredit gottfried which doesn't really work this harkens back to well, no, the if he, if he came up with the idea he came up with the idea it's just independently and potentially after you but people have adopted his approach exactly it's a little murkier than that isaac this throws it back to the era of rene and pierre for analytic geometry Thermat and Dick 
cut. Exactly. But he's not very successful at destroying Gottfried's reputation. They fight it out for the next couple of years. In code. <laughs> now everything's out yeah, in the you can open. Yeah, the code now, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Newton You're does... You're an absolute 73189CF. Bleep, bleep. <laughs> Newton does eventually publish his work in some seminal mathematical texts that mm-hmm. we still study today and look at for fun historical academic stuff. Uh, he's very high strung. Uh, later in his life, he's trying to rework some of his uh, really important theories and ideas of the Principia Mathematica, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. into this new version. And he ends up having what we now sort of from a modern day perspective know as a, a nervous breakdown. So right. he's having a tough, a tough time. Yeah. But I asked Natalia if any of this drama like matters today. Does it matter to math or mathematicians who came up with calculus, who gets the credit, and where she stands on this whole issue? I do believe that they acted completely independently from each other. And no mathematical community, I don't think, matters uh, very much who developed first. It happens very often because the mathematical inventions, as in any other uh, science, it's a gradual process. And when too many questions accumulate, there would be the short period of time when these questions would have to be answered for the community to move forward. But it would matter a heck of a lot at the time. At the and time. probably a century around them as well, especially if it's a geographical issue. But I can see how now, such a long time after, you're like, okay, one of these two or both of them or whatever came up with this massive idea of calculus and that's the important thing. Absolutely. And as Stephen says, it literally changes the way we think about numbers and the way we think about everything in our universe because regardless of priority here like their cumulative efforts whether they were cooperative or not which they were not weirdly like literally anything that changes anything in the world in the universe that you can think of that changes especially over time calculus has got it covered the really stunning thing about calculus and the reason for its great appeal and importance is that calculus is the language of the universe. I mean, that's a pretty grandiose thing to say, but it really is true. If you look at the laws of nature, say that govern the motion of the planets, the changing of populations in an ecosystem, the conduction of electricity in our nervous systems that allow us to think and feel, um, have memories, you know, anything, the motion of hurricanes, the GPS systems that help us get home at night, the fact that we're communicating with each other right now wirelessly, all of these things were made possible by calculus, this mathematics of change, because somehow, and for reasons we don't fully understand, the universe seems to be built on calculus. Or or maybe a better way to say it is calculus describes the way the universe works at a very fundamental level. Wow, yeah, there you go. The language of the universe, because, you know, there are not many things that are linear and just kind of constant. Everything changes. Everything is always changing. And One of my favorite parts about this is that not only has it shaped math of the modern period and of today, but it also is the basis of everything in our future, the science and tech of the future. Natalia, Greg, is working on something that I think may be the coolest thing I've ever heard of. It's called liquid light computing. Ooh! (laughs) It is just as cool as it sounds. Is that like next step beyond quantum computers? Yes, exactly! It involves quantum phenomena, but it's not quantum computing. It's like taking physical systems and using them to like inform our understanding of prediction in the future and mathematics. It's just like 
so and amazing. Liquids, like obviously they flow, they change that rate of change of flow. That's calculus. Percent exactly. So at its core, this is applied calculus, like everything. And so now I just I can't look at anything in the world without thinking like, oh man. There's an equation for that. <gasps> Hang on, to throw back to our um, beautiful mind episode about <laughs> game theory, you're now doing the John Nash. You're kind of looking at the world and I'm kind of seeing those. you're seeing not equations necessarily, but you're being like, that's calculus. That's calculus. You're a changed person. I'm a completely changed person. 100%. I'm in love with math a little bit. I think it's beautiful. I think it's poetic. Huh, uh, I this found this, this quote from Einstein that really sums it up. He says, how can it be that mathematics being, after all, a product of human thought, which is independent of experience, is so admirably appropriate to the objects of reality. <sighs> and I just, I feel so excited about this change of heart that I've had, this change of mind. And I hope, my hope, is that this episode, for anybody out there who also struggles with math or has great anxiety about math, like I always have, can step back and see the bigger picture and see that math can be beautiful, math can be creative, math can be poetic. And if we can see how it applies to our world and everything in it that we touch in our day-to-day -day lives, that hopefully struggling through differential equations in your university calculus class will be a little bit less painful. <laughs> Amen to that. Right, we haven't gone into what differentiation is. You know, we haven't gone into like, dy by dx like how you calculate this yeah, stuff we, didn't even need we haven't equations. gone into integration and the squiggly lines mm -hmm. uh and kind of what that means because we don't need to like it's not about the detail like quite often when you're at school or uni or whatever you're working on a specific problem but what you've done fantastically here is you've stepped back and you've gone this is the context this is where the idea applies and this is why we need the idea thanks bud and that's wonderful and i feel like that's what i needed in school is i was always trying to ask the why like why are we doing this what is this where, where does this go? I wanted to level deeper and I never got that answer from a math teacher. And I feel like anybody out there who likes to say like, excuse me, teacher, when are we going to use this in real life? The answer is that it's already all around you. Which brings us to the end of our story and the time to say goodbye. Loved it. Thanks, bud. This is my favorite so far, actually. Me too. I'm so jazzed about it. <laughs> oh, I'm feeling so victorious. Take that, calculus one. And the man in the front row who always made fun of me for not understanding what was going on. Look at me now, smashing it. That's right. Just done a whole podcast on it. I'm going to send him this podcast. Today's amazing experts who I really enjoyed talking to were Natalia Berloff and Stephen Strogatz. Uh, Stephen has a great book out, uh, Infinite Powers, as well as his own podcast, The Joy of X. So make sure you go ahead and check that out. All of the sources, links to our experts and their bios, all of the supplemental material can be found in today's show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review it wherever you get yours. And also please spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone who you think would enjoy the podcast in general or this episode in particular. Loads more episodes if you've just discovered us through this one. One, uh, and more on the way as well so subscribe to catch them uh, and if you have a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery or an invention that you'd like to know the story behind you can email us brilliant at seeker.com and if you want to get in touch with either of us on social media we'd love to hear from you uh this right here is greg foot he goes by at greg foot on both twitter and instagram this right here is marin hunsberger who goes by at marin hunsberger on twitter but at marin b b e a on instagram surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker and this episode was written by me marin hunsberger my co-host is greg foot and our amazing producer for this episode was sylvia lazaris this episode was edited by lucas bollinger we had support from the team at seeker including Caroline Roth, 
Jessica Young, Megan Bates and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Greg, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangish Hadakudur. You can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com. We'll chat to you next time.